0: Section 7 of Finland and the Tsars, 1809-1899, by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair. Chapter 7. Nicholas I. The unexpected death of Alexander at Taganrog in the winter of 1825 was the cause of a curious constitutional complication alexander had no son and for many years the grand duke constantine who was only two years his brother's junior had been regarded and treated everywhere as the heir to the throne he joined in the imperial conference at erfurt where he could scarcely be kept from openly resenting the arrogance of napoleon he took part by the emperor's side in the campaigns of eighteen twelve to eighteen fourteen he led the guards at Leipzig, when they wiped out the stain of Austerlitz, and he was present at the Congress of Vienna. All this time, Nicholas, who was the son of Tsar Paul's second marriage and who belonged almost to another generation, lived in retirement and spent his time in foreign travel or in attending to his duties as an officer of engineers. When Alexander died, Constantine was Governor General of Poland, and in his absence, all the public bodies and the generals. Grand-Duke Nicholas, amongst the number, took the oath of allegiance to the Emperor Constantine. The Governor and Senate and Judges in Finland did the same. But in Russia, the succession is regulated by a family law, which gives extraordinary powers to the reigning czar. and when the documents came to be examined, it was discovered that not Constantine, but Nicholas was his brother's successor. Sir so, la femme, Constantine, sent to rule the Poles, had succumbed to the charms of a Polish countess. He got rid of his wife, a princess of Saxe-Coburg, and married the Countess Grudzinska. The Tsar thereupon required from him a renunciation of his right of succession in favour of his brother Nicholas, and a formal family act to that effect was drawn up and placed in the archives. For some reason, however, the transaction was kept secret, Nicholas himself remaining as ignorant as the rest. This was in 1822, and Alexander, who was then only forty-five, and counted on a score of years of life, doubtless thought that many things might happen that would render the promulgation of the change unnecessary. When the unexpected happened, Constantine does not seem to have repented his choice. On his brother's death, although power was within his reach, he was indeed in a sense already Tsar, for he had been proclaimed, and the authorities had sworn allegiance, he clung to his countess and sent to St. Petersburg a fresh renunciation. Nicholas then accepted the situation, and on December 24th issued a manifesto announcing his accession to the throne. The previous oath-takings were treated as null and void, and the allegiance to Nicholas I was sworn all over the empire, in Poland and in Finland. It was a critical time for Finland. Speransky, the best friend the Grand Duchy had among the Russian officials, had long ago fallen from power. Zakrevsky, the governor-general, resented the constitutional checks to which he found himself subjected. The new Tsar was probably entirely ignorant of the peculiar situation, but the Grand Duchy was fortunate in possessing in Count Rebender a secretary of state with rare qualities of prudence, tact, and firmness, and on the very day of the acceptance of the throne by Nicholas, December 12th, 24th, 1825, the act of assurance of the liberties of finland was signed by the new monarch in terms similar to those drawn up by his brother the only necessary alteration was in the preamble where in place of the phrase providence having placed us in possession of the grand duchy of finland the words having come by the will of providence into the hereditary possession of the grand duchy of finland are substituted Many plans were upset by the sudden death at Taganrog. not the least important being those of the high officers, who in St. Petersburg and Kiev were quietly plotting to send Alexander along the blood-stained road that had already been trodden by his father and grandfather. The would-be assassins, the Decabrists, as they were called, from the month in which their plans came prematurely to a climax, had fixed on May 1826 for their outbreak, and, as there was much discontent with the reactionary and tyrannical courses into which Alexander had drifted, they had good hopes of carrying the army with them. Whether they meant to upset the dynasty altogether, or simply to place Constantine on the throne, is not quite clear. Probably it was not clear to themselves. One, at least, of the leaders, Colonel von Pestel, was a Republican, and among his papers was a complete constitution for Russia on the model Of that of the United States of America. Others would probably have been content with Constantine and a constitutional monarchy. This latter was the form the movement took when Alexander's death forced the conspirators to strike at once. Counting on the glamour that always surrounds the name of an ill used heir, they declared Nicholas to be a usurper of the rights of his brother and called on the army and the people to support Constantine and the constitution. A military outbreak was attempted in the capital on December 26, but the real leaders were still in the south, and the mutiny was a fiasco. A whiff of grape shot swept away the decabrists, and Nicholas, having hanged half a dozen of the leaders, and sent the rest to Siberia, took a firm seat on the throne. Finland and Finnish officers had had no hand in the business, but the Grand Duchy suffered, as did Russia and Poland, for the crimes of a few officers, who had not realized that the seventeenth-century crimes were out of fashion in Russia. The new emperor soured at the very outset of his reign, determined to rule with a rod of iron, and the whole country was managed from the point of view of the army. Nicholas, however, if severe, was not bloodthirsty. He practically abolished the death penalty in Russia, as well as in Finland, and he recognised and on the whole respected the constitutional rights of the Grand Duchy. But there was no progress, no development possible under his government, and the Polish rising in 1830 confirmed him in his suspicion and dislike of constitutional government. Finland, always orderly and law-abiding, was wise enough to recognise the situation, and afford no pretext for interference from St. Petersburg, where Rebender was ever on the watch. The Committee for Finnish Affairs, indeed, was abolished, but its disappearance only seems to have strengthened the hands of the Secretary of State, whose office was confirmed and secured in the decree dissolving the Committee. The Finlanders are accustomed to a long winter. They know that there is life under the deep snow, and that the spring is coming. The Constitution was snowed over during the reign of Nicholas, but there was a glorious spring under his son and successor, alexander the second even when nicholas somewhat touched on the rights of the estates as in the edict of 1827 granting toleration to orthodox officeholders in finland he did so with the special reservation of those rights and with an explanation that he only acted because it was inconvenient at that moment to summon a diet the very abolition of the finnish committee was accompanied by a reiteration of the confirmation of the fundamental laws and organic constitutions of the country. Later on, in 1835, when the work of codification and amendment of Russian law was completed, Nicholas appointed a Finnish committee to regulate the law and procedure of the courts in the Grand Duchy. One of the laws that required some modification was the Civil Law of 1734, and it became the duty of the committee, when they had completed their report, point out to the Tsar that the law had been passed by estates assembled in a general diet, and so, according to the constitution, could only be altered in similar fashion. Nicholas accepted the point as conclusive, and directed that the law should be left unchanged, and that only the administrative ordinances should be revised. The most important event for Finland during the reign of Nicholas was the death of Count Reibinder, Minister Secretary of State. Which took place in 1841. To him, more than any other, is due the firm establishment on a working basis of the Finnish Constitution during over thirty years of constant watchfulness and labor. Nor was Finland less fortunate in his successor, Count Armfelt, who took up the work and carried it on till 1876. It is not often that a country finds two such men in its service to mould and fix its position in an unbroken series of acts through more than two generations. In Finland itself, the only changes were the resignation of General Zakrevsky as governor, and the appointment of Admiral Prince Menshikov as his successor, and the increase in the membership of the Senate from 14 to 20, the larger number being rendered necessary by the steady increase in the current business. As Menshikov retained his post at the head of the Russian fleet, and had his headquarters at st petersburg there was under his government little interference with the normal course of affairs in finland Vieta non movere was indeed the motto of the whole administration in finland at this time the taxation was sufficient to meet the needs of the government and if laws could not be reformed without the calling of a diet then they were left unreformed and perhaps nobody was for a time very much the worse The function of Parliament as a national debating club had not then been thought of, and annual sittings had never been the rule. Russia under Nicholas and Nesselrod did not care for experiments. So long as Finland was not heard of, the Emperor was content. They said of George Grenville that he brought about the American war, because he so far broke through official the routine as to read the Governor's dispatches, and to worry himself about the colonies which his predecessors never did nesselrohr did not worry or fidget finland governed itself that was enough for Tsar and chancellor the allies did not greatly distinguish themselves either by land or sea during the crimean war but the vacillation and incompetence of the french and english leaders only served to throw into greater relief the breakdown of the great military machine to the perfection of which nicholas had devoted his life let us make peace since we do not know how to make war, one of the generals is reported to have said when Alexander II, on his accession, called a council to discuss the situation in the Crimea, and the epigram was hardly an exaggeration. The whole system on which the Tsar had prided himself was found to be rotten, and Nicholas did not survive the discovery. After his death, the war dragged on for some months, but after the fall of Sebastopol, it had no longer any object, and his successor, Alexander II, hastened to make peace. The Tsarevich had long been totally out of sympathy with his father's reactionary and despotic policy, and was full of plans for the regeneration of Russia. The first condition of all was the restoration of peace and a financial equilibrium. End of section seven. Section 8 of Finland and the Tsars, 1809-1899, by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair. Chapter 8 Alexander II, The Diet Revived Alexander II, on his accession, signed the usual assurance of the liberties of Finland, A country with which he had already displayed considerable sympathy in his position as chancellor of helsingfors university prince menschikov who like Nesselrod, went into retirement on the abandonment of the system with which he had been identified ceased to be the nominal governor of finland and was replaced by count berg a vigorous and capable administrator at the same time count armfeldt minister secretary of state in st petersburg secured the reappointment of the committee for finland that had been dissolved by nicholas alexander himself visited finland in the spring of 1856 and took occasion to preside at a sitting of the senate in helsingfors on which occasion he thanked the senate and the people for their assistance during the war expressed his sympathy with them in the severe losses inflicted on the coast towns by the hostile fleets and commissioned the senate to prepare schemes for the development of industries agriculture for promoting education and for the making of canals and railways. So far this was all satisfactory, but the question that still troubled Finland was whether Alexander intended to play the part of benevolent despot, or of constitutional monarch acting through the representatives of the nation assembled in the General Diet. For Finland had not remained unaffected by the new spirit that passed over Europe in the forties, and the word nation began to be heard even under Nicholas. It was no longer the interests and privileges of the estates, so much as the rights of the people that were spoken of, and it was felt that real intellectual or material development could only come through a development of national ideals. Professor Charman, afterwards Bishop Borgo, took advantage of the coronation festivities in 1856 to deliver a speech that gave a voice to this new emotion the first wish that stirs in the breasts of the finnish people at such a moment is that it may be able to extend and develop as a people that we finns although united under the same ruler as the great russian empire are and will remain finns free to develop our nationality the country should advance he went on to say by the united labours of the government and the representatives of the nation the Diet should be assembled soon and often, and freedom should be given both to the estates and to the press. Perhaps this bold utterance, in a fashion unknown in Russia, and little known at the time in Finland, rather delayed than hastened the summoning of a Diet, for it was not calculated to reassure timid officials, who already saw the country going ahead too fast. Alexander himself was so busy with reforms and changes of all sorts in Russia and in Poland, that he had little time to devote to Finland, and as the years passed, and no diet was summoned, people began to murmur. In 1859, the Senate, at the request of Count Berg, drew up a list of subjects requiring attention, with which it was impossible to deal without the cooperation of the diet it was not however till eighteen sixty one that any sign of action came from st petersburg and then the tsar adopted a course which gave rise to lively dissatisfaction he summoned not the estates to a diet but simply a meeting of a committee of the representatives of the four orders of finland it is true that in a further paragraph of the manifesto it was explained after the representations of the committee had been considered the decisions to be arrived at by the emperor in view of the desires and necessities of the country would hold good only until the meeting of the next diet but as under alexander and nicholas the next diet had been talked of for fifty years and had never been held the finnish people were justly alarmed urgent remonstrances were made and on april twenty fourth a fortnight after the original manifesto was issued an explanatory message arrived to the effect that the work of the committee would be of a twofold nature first to prepare propositions to be submitted to the diet in such matters as required the cooperation of the estates and second to make proposals for administrative regulations in matters not falling within the scope of the diet the committee was ultimately formed on this understanding a series of fifty-two questions being submitted to it for discussion two years had still to pass before the diet met with a sovereign less firm of purpose than alexander the second the interval might have been disastrous for his well-meant efforts to conciliate and pacify poland by the grant of representative institutions had ended in failure, civil war, and insurrection, and had afforded another argument to the fanatical Moscow party with its policy of compulsory Russification. But the Tsar at last made up his mind to trust the Finns, and on September 6th, 18th, 1863, Finland's legally elected Diet met for the first time since 1809. Alexander had been spending part of the summer in Finland, And when he reached Helsingfors for the opening of the Diet, he was met by his sons Alexander, Vladimir, and Alexis, and by Prince Gorchakov, and General Milyutin, the ministers for foreign affairs and for war. The new governor, Baron Rokossovsky, and Count Armfelt, the Finnish Secretary of State, were also, of course, present, and all the leading officials, so that nothing was wanting to lend importance to the occasion, or to give full effect to the Emperor's carefully prepared speech, which was, in fact, like those of his uncle, a manifesto to the Finnish people, a document in which he not only accepted and amplified all that Alexander I had said, but threw out a hint that, so far from Finnish representative institutions being crushed out by Russia, the dear to Finland might, by its moderation and practical good sense, serve as an example to be imitated on a larger scale in Russia itself the deputies were received by the emperor in the throne-room of the palace at helsingfors and welcomed in the following words representatives of the grand duchy of finland in seeing you assembled around me i am glad to have been able to fulfil my desire and your hopes my attention has long been directed to a certain number of questions successively raised which concern the most serious interests of your country these questions have remained in suspense because their solution required the co of the estates certain important considerations the appreciation of which is reserved for me prevented me from convening the representatives of the four orders of the grand duchy during the first years of my reign. Nevertheless, I took in good time preparatory steps to attain this object, and now that circumstances are no longer of a nature to cause further postponement, I have convoked you in order to lay before you, after having previously heard the report of my Senator Finland, the proposed laws, and— the administrative business which will require your attention in the course of the present session. Considering their importance, I have had them examined first by a committee composed of men enjoying the confidence of the nation. The publicity given to the debates of this committee has acquainted you beforehand with the object of your deliberations and you have been enabled to thoroughly examine these projected measures by consulting the opinions and the wants of the country consequently in spite of their number and importance it will be possible for you to dispose of them finally within the period fixed by law the financial statement which will be communicated to you will show that the revenues of the state have always suffered to cover the current expenditure, and that the substantial increase of the indirect taxes, a proof of the national prosperity, has made it possible to apply these additional resources to the material and intellectual development of the country. I have authorised the government of the Grand Duchy to contract loans solely in order to meet the requirements of the last war, and to cover the expense of constructing the railway between Helsingfors and Tvasterhus. An account of the use made of these loans will be likewise communicated to you, and will show that the present revenue of the state is sufficient to gradually pay off this debt with its interest. It is my wish, however, that for the future no new loan be raised without the concurrence of the estates of the Grand Duchy, unless an expected invasion by the enemy, or some other unforeseen national calamity, should make it a necessity for us. The new taxes that I propose to the Diet are designed to carry out different measures destined to augment the welfare of the country, and to advance the cause of popular education. You have to decide as to the urgency and extent of these measures. Many provisions of the fundamental laws of the Grand Duchy are no longer applicable to the state of affairs existing since its union with the Empire. Others lack clearness and precision desirous of remedying these imperfections, it is my intention to have a measure carefully prepared which shall contain explanatory and supplemental provisions. These will be submitted to the consideration of the estates at the next diet, which I propose convoking three years hence, whilst maintaining the principle of constitutional monarchy essentially involved in the character of the Finnish people, and of which all their laws and institutions bear the impress, I wish to include in this projected measure a more extended right, than that which the estates now possess, as to the adjustment of taxation, as also the right of motion which they formerly possessed, reserving to myself, however, the initiative in all questions which affect the alteration of the fundamental laws." You know my sentiments and my wishes for the happiness and prosperity of the peoples entrusted to my charge. None of my acts have been such as to disturb the good understanding that ought to exist between the sovereign and the nation. I desire that this understanding may continue, as in the past— to be a guarantee of the good relations which unite me to the brave and loyal Finnish people. It will contribute powerfully to the prosperity of a country very dear to my heart, and will supply me with a new motive for assembling you periodically. It is for you the representatives of the Grand Duchy to prove by the dignity the moderation the calmness of your discussions that in the hands of a wise and well-conducted people determined to work hand in hand with the sovereign in a practical manner for the development of its well-being liberal institutions far from being a danger become a guarantee of order and prosperity i declare the present diet open this speech which was delivered in french and of which copies in swedish and finnish were distributed all over the country is judiciously left uncriticized in public at least by the russian nationalists and yet it is difficult to take them seriously as public men with a program if they ignore assurances so clear and so recent, and cry out for the use of force to destroy what was so emphatically and so cordially guaranteed by their present emperor's grandfather. Even if all that had passed before, under the reign of Alexander I, were blotted out, these utterances would be sufficient to place the constitutional rights of Finland above question, The sentences in which the principle of constitutional monarchy is admitted and placed on a historic basis are an answer by anticipation to the argument that the autocracy cannot limit itself. In the case of Finland, as Alexander points out, the question of limitation does not arise, for in that country constitutional monarchy is not a thing conferred by Russia, nor a limitation of the power of Russia's rulers but a thing inherent in the institutions of the people, and taken over, with all its limitations, by Alexander I, when he undertook the sovereignty. There are certain other points in the speech that must be noted before we leave it. In the first place, the separate existence of the Grand Duchy is recognised. It is never referred to as a province, or as a subject to the laws of the Empire. It is a nation state country subject to its own laws next the absolute and exclusive right of the diet to deal with certain classes of questions is recognized the very fact that under the stress of war and rebellion their legal consideration has been delayed serves to bring the principle into greater prominence as even the absolute nicholas had recognized Such questions had to remain in suspense, so long as there was no diet to consider and decide them. Nor are the questions remitted to this diet, there were some forty-eight of them, simply submitted for discussion as to their wording or their form. They were submitted for examen definitive. the suggestion that the Constitution of 1809 had come to an end because for half a century no diet had met to vote revenue, is disposed of in the next paragraph. The revenue already voted, which, by the Swedish constitutional law, was perennial, had suffered to cover the normal peace expenditure, its constant increase, a testimony to the growth of Finnish prosperity, sufficing to meet the various demands for the moral and material development of the country, the Tsar appealed to his brave and loyal Finnish people, whether his acts had not been such as to maintain the good understanding that ought to exist between the sovereign and the nation. But Alexander II did not simply submit himself to the Finnish constitution as to some abnormal growth which he inherited. He accepted the principle as good in itself, and as suggesting a possible model for other nations under his sceptre. When he called on his Finnish subjects to prove their dignity and their moderation, that free institutions in the hands of a prudent and responsible people, instead of being a danger to the state, might be made a guarantee of order and prosperity, he had undoubtedly in his mind possibilities with regard to Russia at large, which he never altogether relinquished, which, indeed, he almost brought to the test of experiment, and which, as we since know, were occupying his mind on the very day of his murder. The first enthusiasm connected with the emperor's visit and his speech, having passed away, the diet set itself steadily to its task of clearing up half a century's arrears in legislation. Four months was the normal legal period assigned to a diet, but in spite of the hope expressed that the previous discussions in committee would have so simplified matters that everything could have received its examen definitif within the time fixed, the Diet was not really closed until the middle of April in the following year, after a busy session of seven months. The members were naturally new to their business. Very few of them can have had any clear recollection of the proceedings at borgo fifty-four years before there were probably few survivors among the members of the first diet everything had to be started afresh committees formed efficient presidents found and a suitable subdivision of the work among the committees agreed upon where no less than forty-eight measures of first-rate importance and touching on every side of the political industrial and social life of the nation had to be dealt with this was naturally no simple task there were of course advantages on the other side finland having had no politics for half a century had not yet developed parties and party leaders so that days and weeks were not wasted in set speeches and debates only one of the estates the nobles possessed a meeting-place of their own, the Riddahuset, which had been specially erected a couple of years before, and this single building had to answer the purposes of all the four bodies constituting the Diet. But this again facilitated the work of the joint committees, and tended to make the different estates work together as members of one body engaged on a common task. The language difficulty had not yet become so urgent as in later years, in august eighteen sixty three just before the diet met a decree had been issued granting equality to finnish in law courts and government offices, but swedish was still the one official language the just claims of the finnish speaking population were however rapidly coming to the front and in the course of the diet a petition was presented by the two country orders the clergy and the peasants praying for the use of the Finnish tongue in schools. It was indeed this language question more than any other that shortly led to the formation of a definite Finnish party, and to the prolonged struggle between Fenoman and Zweckoman in the Diet and in the press. Baron Nordenstam, the chairman of the Economy Department of the Senate, a position that may be taken as resembling very roughly that of an English Prime Minister, or a French President of the Council, was naturally the most prominent figure in the Diet. He was also Marshal of the Nobles, or Speaker of the Upper House, and was appointed Chairman of the important committee charged with the preparation of a new form of government, and of a law of the Diet. Only with the latter of these two was any progress made. The former still awaits solution. At the risk of anticipating somewhat, it may be well here to give an account of this law, which owes its main form and principles, to the Diet of 1863, although, owing to the very leisurely progress of legislation under the Tsars, it was not finally passed by the Estates until the Diet of 1867, nor sanctioned and promulgated as an unchangeable fundamental law till 1869. The law of the Diet was, in fact, Finland's great reform bill. The separate representation and the separate sittings of the four Estates were retained, although in sweden they have been abandoned but the form of representation was considerably improved and the franchise extended the procedure in the diet itself was also improved by the institution of a grand committee representing all the orders and endowed with some of the powers of the whole diet a majority in three out of the four of the estates is still necessary for the passing of new laws and a majority in all of the estates constitutional changes but as this might easily lead to the blocking of many urgent matters the grand committee has in the manner explained later on power to act in such cases by a majority vote independent of the distribution of the votes among the different orders the old idea that the estates represent each the interests of a legislative corporation is in fact done away with and the representatives as a whole represent the interests of finland as a whole The House of Nobles naturally represented the more conservative side of the diet, but in a country where there were few large properties and no striking contrasts in wealth or position, the contests never degenerated into struggles between the haves and have-nots. One of the most striking debates in this house was, in fact, on the proposal that the nobility as a class should surrender their separate privileges, of which there were many medieval survivals still in force and the process of equalisation then begun, has since been practically completed. The government of the rural communes was placed on a popular basis, and money voted for schools and railways, banking and finance, were also taken in hand, and press regulation voted, which, if only limited and temporary in its effects, constituted a great improvement on the rigid censorship that had prevailed under Nicholas, and was followed by the establishment of many new journals, finally the diet was dissolved on april fifteenth by an imperial message in which the promise was renewed of summoning a fresh meeting of the estates three years later the country was not slow in responding to the new spirit that prevailed in high quarters and from this period dates the extraordinary development of finland in every department of national progress the rural districts had however a terribly severe period to pass through in consequence of a succession of bad years in the middle sixties at that time the country was still largely dependent on local supplies for food and as communications had not been developed a short harvest meant absolute starvation to thousands unless assisted during the terribly long and severe Finnish winter relief committees did their best but the country had a severe setback and the census returns in eighteen seventy Showed an absolute decrease in the population since 1865. Things, however, soon took a fresh start, and progress has since been uninterrupted. The policy of railway making was taken up in earnest by the Senate, and constituted an excellent means of providing relief for the starving peasants, providing the state at the same time with a valuable national asset, bringing in a good and constantly increasing return for the outlay. Finland was always liable owing to the climatic and other conditions to rather more than its share of periods of distress but the vastly improved condition of the people and the development of the railways and roads have rendered impossible a return of the horrors of thirty years ago the diet met again in eighteen sixty seven and resumed the work left unfinished three years before the law of the diet was completed and at the same time the organization and procedure of the house of nobles was simplified by abolishing the old subdivision of its membership into lords knights and squires the church was also placed on a self-governing basis but the great achievement of the eighteen sixty seven diet in the field of practical legislation was the settlement of the vabor land question in this province which it will be remembered had been for a long period under direct russian domination before it was restored to finland in eighteen eleven the land tenure based on the old russian system was essentially different from that prevailing in other parts of finland and the diet resolved to buy out the russian proprietors and divide the land among the peasants the purchase money being paid in instalments as in ireland under the land purchase acts finland however has the credit of inaugurating this system just a year before it was introduced into english legislation by the bright clauses of the irish church act The process was begun with a loan of 4 million marks, but before it was completed, the Senate had voted 17 million marks in the settlement of some 80,000 persons. The money has been well repaid, and the condition of the districts in question has undergone a marked improvement. The question of the press again came up for discussion in the 1867 Diet, and here, unfortunately, a step backward was taken that has had deplorable results lasting till the present time finland had a new governor count adlerberg who appears to have been abnormally sensitive to press criticism possibly enough some of the newspapers made too free a use of their new-born freedom whoever was to blame the liberty of the press received a severe blow the government brought in a measure containing provisions which were not regarded as satisfactory by any section of the diet And it was rejected by a majority of each of the four orders. The result was that, no provision being made for regulating the press, it fell back into the category of matters which, in the absence of positive law, the Emperor Grand Duke has the power to regulate through his representative, the Governor General. Since that time, the press has been entirely at the mercy of the Governor of the day, and occupies, as will be seen later, a position rather worse than that of the press in Russia. The rejection of this bill led to some tension in the relations between Alexander II and the Finnish people, and in his message closing the diet, he complained that his actions and intentions had been misrepresented. A five years' period had been fixed upon in the law of the diet as the maximum interval that should elapse in future between successive meetings of the estates, and, as a matter of fact, the next meeting did not take place until 1872, and the full five years' interval was allowed to elapse before the two following deits also, those of 1877 and 1882. The diet of 1872 was unimportant from the constitutional point of view, being chiefly occupied with matters of internal law and organisation. An attempt was made to induce the Tsar to submit a new press-law, but he refused. Although there was, for a time, a marked relaxation in the stringency of the censorship. Before the next diet met, Count Armfeldt, who had for so many years guarded the interests of Finland in St. Petersburg, died, an almost irreparable loss for Finland, especially in view of the troubled times that were coming. There had been only two Finnish secretaries of state during the reign of three czars, and as they were both men of exceptional capacity, their influence was great. Since then, there have been constant changes in the office, and the Finnish Minister-Secretary has steadily lost influence until, with this year's appointment of a Russian official, the post may be regarded as having lost all its meaning. The Diet of 1877 was in some respects the most important since 1863, for then the first trial of strength took place between the Russian Minister of War and the Finnish Constitution, a conflict that has now culminated twenty years later and has developed into a struggle for the very existence of the Constitution itself. The points at issue will be gone into at length when the humble reply of the Extraordinary Diet of 1899 comes up for discussion. It will be sufficient here to indicate the circumstances connected with the proposals of 1877 the results of the war of eighteen seventy to seventy one led to the adoption in eighteen seventy three of a new army scheme in russia and general Milutin, not understanding or troubling about imperial pledges or existing laws simply proposed that the scheme should be extended to finland by decree it was not difficult to show that this was altogether illegal and alexander consented to its being put in the form of a proposition for a new law and submitted to the Diet in the ordinary way at its next meeting. The military arrangements of the Grand Duchy undoubtedly required overhauling. Certain militia battalions that had been formed during the Crimean War had long since been dissolved, and Finland's whole military forces were represented by a battalion of guards and helsingfors. All the European armies had been recast on the German model, and the majority of public men in Finland frankly acknowledged that their country could not lag behind, but between that and the making of the Finnish army a mere Russian army corps is a long step. The points in dispute between the War Office and the Diet were many, but eventually the new scheme was agreed to, and the Finnish army established on its present footing. The principle of universal liability to serve was recognised by the estates by substantial majorities, but, on the other hand, Provisors were inserted for maintaining the right of Finlanders to serve in Finnish regiments only, and under Finnish officers, thus safeguarding the position guaranteed by Alexander I at Borgo, and in order still further to ensure Finland's rights from attack, when the scheme thus amended was promulgated by the Tsar, certain sections of the law were expressly declared to be included among the fundamental laws of the Grand Duchy. The whole question of military organisation was thus recognised as a matter whose alteration required the assent of three estates of the Diet, whilst the particular clauses declared fundamental can only be altered with the assent of all four estates. The military party in St. Petersburg were naturally very angry at the alterations made, and, worst of all, accepted by the Tsar in the army scheme, especially as in the interval the Russo-Turkish War of eighteen seventy seven to seventy eight had begun to show that count Meliutin's scheme when put to the test across the danube broke down almost as badly as did that of nicholas in the crimea the diplomatic defeat suffered by russia at the congress of berlin embittered them still further and the nationalists began to put themselves into almost open opposition to the emperor and his measures ingratitude and conspiracy at home and increasing difficulties abroad embittered the last days of alexander the second and his assassination on march 13th 1881 was only the climax of a tragedy in finland he was loved as few sovereigns have ever been and the monument that has been erected to his memory in front of the senate house in helsingfors is a worthy tribute of a nation's mourning for the czar who restored and extended its constitutional liberties End of section eight. Section nine of Finland and the Czars, eighteen o nine 1809 to eighteen ninety nine, by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alastair. Chapter nine, Alexander the and the Reaction the accession of alexander the third was the signal for the reaction in russia and fears were entertained in finland that the new order of things that had happily prevailed under alexander the second would not continue voices in the russian press suggesting a return to the blind absolutism of a past generation were not lacking but in finland at least alexander remained true to the principles of his father he not merely signed the constitutional assurance, in the usual form, confirming the religion and the fundamental laws of the country, but he added to it a special rescript directed to the governor general, in which he accepted and approved both the original granting of the constitution by Alexander I, and also its development by Alexander II and the diet. In confirming by a gracious manifesto of this day, Constitution that was granted to the Grand Duchy of Finland by His Majesty, the Emperor Alexander Polovich, of most glorious memory, and developed with the consent of the estates of Finland by our dearly beloved Father of blessed memory, the Emperor Alexander Nikolaevich, we do so with great satisfaction, keeping in gracious remembrance the many proofs of unfailing affection and gratitude to their sovereign and benefactor given by the inhabitants of that country, by which they brightened the reign of our never to be forgotten father, who always kept their welfare in mind. Two personal changes of importance took place in the first year of Alexander's reign. Baron Stiernval Wallin who was already an old man when he succeeded to the post of the secretary of state for finland on the death of count Armfeldt in eighteen seventy six was permitted to retire and was succeeded by baron brun the governor-general count adlerberg also resigned and his successor count haydn was understood to be an advanced supporter of the nationalist party no immediate change however was made in the system of government and in May, 1881, the usual proclamation was issued summoning the estates to meet in the following January. The new Tsar was not able himself to attend the opening of the Diet, but again he sent a special message explaining his desire to carry on his father's work. In convoking you in the virtue of the law of the Diet to deliberate on many questions important to the country, i am guided by the firm principle inflexibly to follow the example of my blessed dearly beloved and never-to-be-forgotten father who never failed in his care for the welfare of finland thus gaining the sincere affection and gratitude of the country i pray to the almighty for help in my endeavours to ensure the happiness of my faithful finnish people of whose honest character I have particularly convinced myself in my visit to the country with my family, retaining at the same time in the most pleasant memory the feelings thus expressed to us. The new emperor's reference in this message to his personal knowledge of Finland and liking for the country was not a mere phrase, for since the day when, as a boy, he stood by his father's side At the opening of the Diet of 1863, he had more than once visited the Grand Duchy, and in later years he was fond of calling at various points on the coast in his yacht and mixing very freely with the people. Nor was this practice given up after his accession to the throne, for during the Nihilist terror that then prevailed, the Tsar found that he could secure both safety and freedom from restraint while yachting among the islands, and here, accompanied by his whole family, he would spend many happy weeks away from the gloomy surroundings of Gatchina. In these later diets, the members displayed a tendency to group themselves more and more into parties, the original cause of dispute being the vexed question of language. Ever since the union with Russia, there had been individuals or groups here and there who worked for the cultivation and extension of finnish as a written language at first this movement was purely literary and philological but as in every european country the cry for political recognition was not long in making itself heard the swedish party naturally organized for the defence of their privileges and the strife between fenoman and svekoman as the two parties were called soon grew hot the best account i have seen of the original significance of the movement is from the pen of senator mechelin who although himself a svekerman leader is by no means prejudiced on this subject he writes of the two national languages the swedish had after eighteen o nine continued to be the official language of the country and of the higher organs of culture and In the beginning this did not cause any discontent among the lower classes of society. The knowledge of writing was at that time very little spread among the people, who therefore were accustomed to rely upon clerks for drawing up of legal statements, and for the interpretation of documents received. In the proceedings of the law courts the parties were never forbidden to express themselves in Finnish, and those judges who were not able to communicate with litigants, except by means of an interpreter, were exceptions. In fact, the Order of Peasants at the Diet of 1809 presented among their petitions one in favour of the right to use the Swedish language in the future as heretofore in all public Petitions and lawsuits, even those to be submitted to the supreme authority in the last instance. Even if this petition was dictated not by indifference to the Finnish language, but by apprehensions as to a change in another direction, it will help to explain why the language question was not taken up earlier in the day. And it certainly was a great advantage, not only with respect to form, that at the early stages of Finnish public life, people were allowed to employ at first a fully developed legal language, and were not obliged to begin too early the difficult task of moulding and using another legal language. According as the Finnish literature and popular education were developed, and national consciousness was raised, the exclusion of the Finnish language from official use seemed a mistake which ought, as soon as possible, to be corrected. In the reign of the Emperor Nicholas, at the instigation of a minority of particularly cautious and short-sighted members of government. An effort had been made to interrupt the development of Finnish literature by an instruction issued to the censorship of the press on April eighth, 1850, not to allow any other Finnish books to be printed than such as were intended for religious edification or practical use. This inconsistent instruction could not, of course, be maintained, and the reawakening of political life afterwards gave such an impetus to Finnish literature that the question about the position of the two languages in political life attracted more serious attention than had formerly been given to it. We have seen that in 1863, just before the opening of the Diet, Alexander II, who was much impressed by the insistence of J. W. Snellman in that, and in other matters, issued a decree granting equality in certain cases between Finnish and Swedish, and this, as might be expected, was only the beginning. Snellman, who, although himself born in Sweden, had for years been the life and soul of the Finnish movement, was less of a politician than Georg Forsman, later known by his Finnish's name, of Jirjo Koskinen, who came to the front as a fighter for the cause of Finnish equality, and the debates in the diet were often stormy. From the first, Finnish had been permitted equally with Swedish in the debates, but the fenomans demanded not toleration, But complete equality in all respects, and the battle raged until 1883, when an imperial decree was issued ordering that all official notices, administrative or judicial, should be issued in the prevailing language of the Commune in which the proceedings originated. And this was followed by another decree in 1887 ordering that the official correspondence should be carried on in the language of the Commune as in the meantime the use of russian was being more and more forced to the front by the imperial authorities it followed that many unhappy officials were compelled to know all three languages the fact that these changes were introduced by decree and not by the action of the diet was in itself an additional embitterment of the dispute the swedish party charged their opponents with bringing in the Russians to help in a domestic quarrel that ought to have been fought out and settled by the representatives of the people in their diet. The Finns could easily retort that, owing to the restricted franchise and other causes, the majority of the country was not represented by a majority in the diet. The fact remained that the Fenemans, for a time, rested under the reproach of being the Russian party, and it was not until the very foundations of the constitution were assailed from st petersburg that the two factions dropped their recriminations and united in the face of a common peril in eighteen eighty two the Tsar alexander the third had shown his desire to act impartially in the dispute by promoting professor koskainen and professor mechelin the leaders of the two parties to the senate but the course of events has since caused both the new senators to resign since 1882, the diets have been summoned to meet triennially instead of quinquennially, as in Alexander II's time, a change rendered necessary by the development of financial and other business. The Diet of 1885 was chiefly engaged in the elaboration of a new and modernised penal code, a measure which was urgently required by the country, but which did not emerge from the many obstacles in its way till nine years later, after the deits of eighteen eighty five and eighteen eighty eight had completed their work on this code and the imperial sanction had been given objections were raised in russia although this was obviously an internal matter that should be settled by the diet, the application of the new law was suspended and the whole measure reopened for fresh examination by a commission sitting under the presidency of the russian minister of justice many changes were proposed and these in turn were considered by the diets of 1891 and 1894, after which the measure was at last formally promulgated on April 14th, 1894. This incident is an example of the way in which, with the growing influence of the Russian Reactionary Party, obstacles began to be thrown in the way of all progress in Finland. In the earlier years of his reign, Alexander III had as we have seen, shown himself most friendly and sympathetic towards Finland. But it is hardly a matter for surprise that the constant state of terrorism in which he lived began ultimately to tell on his political views, as well as on his physical health, and to throw him into the hands of the officials who insisted on absolutism as the only cure for the evils that absolutism had caused. After the borky outrage, October 1888, he may be said to have fallen entirely under the influence of the extreme reactionary party. His fate was scarcely less sad than that of his father, for, by common consent, Alexander III was naturally one of the simplest, honestest, and most kindly of men, and his death in 1894, at the age of 49, was as much a result of his terrible experiences as if he had fallen by the hand, of one of the assassins who dogged his steps. Like so many of his predecessors, he fell a victim to a system which he inherited, and which he was powerless to break down or to alter. Another Peter, or a revolution, will be required for that task. End of Section 9 Section 10 of Finland and the Czars, eighteen o nine 1809 to eighteen ninety nine, by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair. Chapter Ten: The Attack on the Constitution. The St. Petersburg officials were not, however, going to content themselves with merely obstructing the working of the Finnish Constitution. Towards the end of the eighties, it became clear that they aimed at its complete destruction. Finland's unification with Russia was to be taken in hand in earnest. It was at this period that the campaign was opened against the Grand Duchy in the pan Slavist press, and it was openly asserted in newspapers, pamphlets, and books whose official origin was obvious that the pledges of Alexander I and the constitutionalism of Alexander II were alike out of date finland was to have such rights and privileges as were permitted in st petersburg and no more it will be recollected that when in eighteen sixty three the work of drafting a law of the diet was taken in hand the committee was also charged with the preparation of a new form of government to take the place of the two swedish acts the regeringsformen of seventeen seventy two and the foreingings och of 1789 this with the law of the diet sanctioned in eighteen sixty nine would have given finland a complete written constitution but the task was a difficult one the delays were many and the opportunity was lost in eighteen eighty five the committee engaged on the task issued its report with a draft law but the russian officials men of a different stamp from those of eighteen sixty three were clamorous and the scheme was vetoed this was followed up by the adoption of a course of action which conveyed a direct menace to finland's rights of self-government in 1890 three commissions were appointed to study and prepare plans for bringing finland into line with the empire in matters relating to postage coinage and customs duties these were obviously matters to be considered by the finnish senate or by the secretary of state for finland and his committee and the handing of them over to commissions preponderantly Russian was a direct violation of constitutional practice a deputation consisting of the speakers of the four estates of the diet which proceeded to st petersburg to remonstrate was however not received in eighteen ninety one a similar commission under the presidency of m bunge a russian ex-minister of finance was appointed to draw up regulations for the provinces of the grand duchy of finland the introduction of the word provinces showing the intention to ignore so far as possible the political unity of the country and this commission set to work in total disregard of guaranteed rights the postal commission recommended a concentration of the services and the process of Russification in this respect has now been completed a decree of August 1899 prohibiting the use of Finnish postage stamps after the current year. These acts of aggression convinced some of the newly appointed senators that the position of the Finnish Senate was being rendered farcical, and Senators Meschlin and Weisenberg resigned their seats on that body. When the diet met in 1891, the marshal of the nobles and the talman, or speaker, of each of the other three estates, responded to the opening message by a vigorous protest and reiteration of their constitutional rights. The Tsar issued a conciliatory reply, but the unification tendencies of the officials were not checked, and in May of the same year, the Finnish committee in St. Petersburg was dissolved, and the Finnish secretary of state, General Ernorth, resigned, the diet of eighteen ninety four drew up a petition to the czar pointing out the unconstitutional nature of recent actions but it led to no result in this year indeed a new line of aggression was opened up in the shape of attempts to force the russian language on finnish officials whilst the press censorship began to be applied more severely than ever the suppression of articles being a matter of almost daily occurrence the death of alexander the third made no change for russia's finnish policy was now so entirely in the hands of the reactionary officials that the signing by the new tsar of the pledge to confirm and ratify the fundamental laws and to maintain them steadfastly and in full force at the moment when these laws were being encroached upon in every direction in the name of the tsar could only be regarded in finland as a solemn mockery The Diet of eighteen ninety seven, the last regular Diet that has been held, was remarkable chiefly for a revival of the party struggles between Fenomans and Svekomans on the language question, but a settlement arrived at through the action of the Senate put an end to what could only be regarded as a deplorable exhibition of discord at such a national crisis. Governor von Haydn resigned in the same year, and for a time no successor was appointed just at this moment there was in fact for a little while a slight relaxation in the pressure from russia the calm before the storm the sudden resignation june eleventh eighteen ninety eight of general von dane finnish secretary of state was the first warning of danger as it was shortly known that measures had been pressed upon him which his loyalty to the finnish constitution forbade him to undertake and in a few weeks the whole battery of the russian attack was unmasked it must be admitted that general kirupatkin the war minister who had the business in hand showed a curious disregard for the Tsar's feelings in forcing the question to the front at the very time when nicholas the second was elaborating his manifesto pointing out to the world that the rapid increase of armaments strikes at public prosperity at its very source and that the present was a favourable moment for seeking the most effective means of ensuring to all peoples the benefits of a real and durable peace and above all of putting an end to the progressive development of the present armaments the attempt to enforce a quadrupling of finnish armaments in a time of profound peace was surely a cynical commentary on the doctrines of this manifesto and the martially inclined ministers and grand dukes Must have derived much enjoyment from their practical joke at the expense of the ideologue czar. Not only was this unprecedented increase to be made, but it was to be made unconstitutionally by direct edict from St. Petersburg. This last outrage, however, the acting Finnish secretary, General Prokope, was able, by direct remonstrance with the czar, to prevent, and it was decided to call a special diet in January 1899. consider the new army scheme that unification was now to have its full course was manifest not only from the military proposals but also from the choice of general bobrokov who had already had extensive russifying experience in the baltic provinces to fill the vacant governorship of finland the new governor was informed that it would be his duty to bring about the closest union of the country finland with the common fatherland as the military bill ultimately laid before the diet and the manifesto of february fifteenth eighteen ninety nine which swiftly followed it will be discussed fully in the chapters devoted to them only the general course of events need be indicated here general bobrekhoff opened the diet on january twenty fourth and in his speech openly threatened unconstitutional steps in the case the war minister's proposals were not accepted in the diet where all party disputes had now been dropped the numerous illegalities that had been committed in preparation and presentation of the measure were pointed out and this gave the desired pretext for the delivery of the manifesto of february fifteenth and the accompanying statutes which had been secretly prepared by still another commission sitting in st petersburg all such proclamations and statutes must pass through the senate before being promulgated in finland and there was much division of opinion as to the course to be adopted at this unexampled juncture at last the voting was found to be equal ten senators having had the courage to declare that the proclamation was altogether void and illegal and therefore ought not to be issued the others also ten were in favour of publishing it under protest and by the casting vote of the vice-president that course was adopted The procurator-general, in accordance with his duty as the legal adviser of the senate, pointed out that the manifesto was a direct violation of the constitution, and the senate drew up a formal written protest, but when the vice-president and the procurator-general attempted to present it to the Tsar, as was their right, they were refused audience. The diet also protested unanimously, and in the name of all the estates, but when the marshal of the nobles and the three speakers endeavored to reach the emperor, they were also turned away. The same fate awaited the great petition signed by practically the whole adult population of Finland. Reactionary officialdom has succeeded in raising between Nicholas the Second and his Finnish subjects a high wall across which no truth speaking voice is to be allowed to reach the czar. End of section ten.